I'm Alex Amon, your non-binary host, and this is the first behind-the-scenes episode for The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing ways to help people in Turkey and Syria, as well as how I determine the scope of an episode. So since this is the first behind-the-scenes episode, it is going to be a little experimental, so bear with me. Um... My plan for this episode is to be less structured than my normal episodes, but still give me a chance to talk about additional opportunities to make history, which is basically just fighting fascism and fighting for civil rights, um, as well as talk about some of my process and share some interesting tidbits that I found while researching, but I couldn't quite fit into the episode. So with that being said, we it is time for our making history segment. In episode 48 itself, I talked about how to help support the Stop Top City movement in Atlanta. And so if you're interested in that, um, I'd recommend you to check out episode 48. This episode, I want to talk about how we can help the people in Turkey and Syria, because even though the earthquake was only a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago at this point, um, they still need help. The White Helmet account on Twitter is posting tons of videos and pictures of the rubble that they're trying to sweep away, the number of people who have been displaced, the number of people who are still mourning their loved ones who have been lost or who they haven't been able to find yet. So even though the earthquake has left Western media, um, they still need our help to recover. And so some of the organizations that you can donate to to help are islamicrelief.org. And then there are also um, local organizations on the ground. So in Turkey, there's ABAP, A-H-B-A-P, AKUT, A-K-U-T, Search and Rescue, AFET, A-F-E-T, Emergency Relief, S-G-D-D, Assam, Migrant and Refuge, Refugee Solidarity, Blue Crescent Emergency Relief, Amon Project, which is a relief-led LGBTQ plus grassroots organization, Karam Foundation Community Support, Hayeta Desket, which is life support, and my apologies for my terrible pronunciation, on the ground in Syria. There's Mulham Team, the White Helmets, Blue Crescent again, the Syrian American Medical Society Foundation, Rama Worldwide, Basma, and Zaytuna. Um, there are also two animal rescues, the Dort Aliyotli Sahir Animal Rescue, and then Hark, H-A-R-K, People and Animal Search and Rescue. I will provide a link to all those organizations in the description. Um, any amount helps. Like I said, they're still just dealing with the aftermath of that terrible earthquake. And then in Syria, you still have a civil war going on. Time to come back to the United States. And this time we're going to focus on trans rights. So right now, we are at 400-plus anti-trans bills being discussed. A lot of them are passing. Some of them make it a felony to seek medical care that could literally save lives. Other bills are threatening to take children away from their families if the families even acknowledge that child's gender identity. Others are making it impossible for doctors to even discuss care with their patients without losing their license. It's just it's nasty out there. And so one of the things you can do, you can join and support organizations like Trans Resistance Network, Trans Radical Activist Network, LGBTQ Victory Fund, Trans Health Legal Fund, Transgender Law Center, Trans Justice Funding Project, Homeless Black Trans Fund, Brave Space Alliance, Take Birmingham, and Black Trans Futures. 
If you are part of the book or writing community on Instagram, YouTube, or TikTok, then you can get involved in the Trans Rights Readathon, which is happening right now. It goes from March 20th to March 27th, and all proceeds are going to a trans organization of the reader's choice. So, for example, I am fundraising for Brave Space Alliance, which is a Black-led, trans-led, LGBTQ plus organization here in Southside Chicago. I've used their services many times, and so I feel really happy that I can fundraise for them. I've already raised $170, and I would love it closer to my goal of 500 If you'd like to support me, you can pledge at my fundraiser, which I'll provide a link in the description. And if you can't fund, if you can't pledge, you know, even a dollar for every book I finish, even just making a small-time, one-time donation to Brave Space Alliance makes all the difference in the world. So please uh, support us. And even if you can't donate, like I understand things are tough, check out the hashtag on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. The hashtag is TransRightsReadathon. You'll find plenty of organizations to donate to, plenty of organizations to um, you know, share with other people. There are hundreds of trans books that are being discussed right now. Um, so you can check those out and just you know, sh- spread the word and spread the love for the trans community. So that's one fundraiser. There's another fundraiser being organized by Mercury, Stardust, and Jewelry, who are two trans women who have really large accounts on TikTok and Instagram. They are hosting a 30-hour-long TikTok-a-thon, and they're trying to raise $1 million for trans healthcare when they're currently looking for donations. Their marathon, basically, is March 30th. So all their donations are going to go towards um, trans healthcare, so it'll help for provide chest binders and femme shapewear, um, access to permanent hair removal for trans femme folks, access to gender-affirming surgery and HRT services for trans folks. It's a great way to help trans folk get medical care, a lot of which is currently being debated and banned, but the money's going to go to a really great place and a great cause. And now it is time for the actual behind-the-scenes part of the behind-the-scenes episode. So when I was thinking about this first behind-the-scenes episode, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to talk about. And the episode I just did, um, which is about how the Soviet republics turned into Soviet nation-states, is actually a really good episode to talk about how hard it can be sometimes as a podcast writer and historian to figure out what gets put into an episode. Because every choice we make affects how the, how we shape the narrative and it, will shape, and it affects how people will understand the historical event. And so something as monumentous as the creation of the Central Asian states, there's a lot of perspectives that I just I couldn't cover either because I don't speak the language and there's not as many English language resources that are available or they're out there, but I haven't had a chance to read them. And so then there's a choice of, okay, do I delay this episode even more or do I go with the information that I have? Because the information that I have is a lot. I originally had like 10,000 words worth of notes for this episode. And obviously, I had to cut that down. It was something that I had to think long and hard about, and I had to figure out, you know, which perspectives was I were, was I doing a highlight, and which perspectives were I going to have to cut. And if I did cut them, I still wanted to acknowledge them. So, in what capacity could I acknowledge them? And so, you just have to think like all of those different scenarios and the ins and outs, and just try to figure out, okay, what story am I actually trying to tell today with this episode? And so I do mention it in the episode itself, but one of the narratives I had to cut 
was the Turkmen narrative. So like Turkmenistan is a Central Asian state. It was created with along the other states, but I had made the decision early on in this season to um, not talk about Turkmenistan until I talked about the Trans-Caspian campaign, just because they really seem connected. And even though Turkmenistan is a Central Asian state, it wasn't as connected with the narrative that we've been following, you know, with the Tazak Steppe and the Alish Orda, and then the Jadid and Uzbekistan, what is now Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. The Turkmen story just wasn't as connected with that story. And instead of trying to shoehorn the Turkmen story, I decided, you know what, I'm going to put that in another season so I can, one, have the time to do the proper research, and then two, tell their story in a proper way, proper time frame, instead of trying to squeeze it into this season. So that was like one perspective I had to cut. The other perspective that I had mentioned in the episode that I had to limit was the Kara Kalpak perspective. And the reason why I limited their perspective was just because, honestly, I want to do more research because they're very important. I think it was last year that region um, had a small rebellion because it's still part of Uzbekistan. And the president of Uzbekistan was trying to change its special status because it still has a special status within Uzbekistan. And that comes from the creation of the Oblast in 1924 and then the transfer from Kazakhstan to Uzbekistan in 1936. So like that's a really, really important moment. And I just haven't done enough research, I feel, to be able to tell that story properly in this episode. And so I decided I may mention it. You know, people didn't know that they were people in Central Asia and that they do have a story to tell. And I'm just going to do another episode later on once I finished my research and I feel comfortable on telling that story. Because as I'm sure you can imagine, based on how much information I had about the creation of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, that story is going to be very, very complicated. And again, it's, it's you know, this balance between I have a reputation of being a very weedsy podcast. Um, I try to go into the details as much as I can to present the full story. And I try to present as many perspectives as I can. And I try to be as fair as balanced as I can. And I think one way of achieving that is by sharing, you know, all of the details that I can so you can understand why someone did something. So I'm already known as weedsy podcast person. And sometimes that does get the better of me because then I'm not able to tell a story fully. And I just wanted to be able to tell their story fully because it is so important. The other peoples that I hadn't, you know, I haven't had a chance to talk about are the uh, the Bukharan Jews, what is now Uzbekistan, um, the Chipchaks, the Kwarama, the Kashgaris, the Tatars. There's so many people still in Central Asia who are affected by the creation of these states and the, and I just, I couldn't tell their stories, um, one, because I made the decision that this episode was going to be about the people who got their own state. So that would be, you know, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the Kazakhs, and the Kyrgyz. And also, again, it's just one of those things where I haven't done enough research to feel comfortable telling their story. And since I haven't done enough research, it would have felt shoehorned, and that doesn't seem right. And so I guess one of my rule of thumb in terms of what it's covered in an episode and what doesn't is... One, I have to find the main purpose of the episode. For, so, for example, in episode 48, the creation of the Central Asian states, the main purpose is that we're talking about the creation of the Central Asian states. And so I really need to focus on that process of like how they were created. And then I need to focus on the why. And the why is where it gets complicated because the why is based on so many factors. So in the episode, I decided to focus more on the, I guess I would say the personal 
as well as the ideological factors. So like I focused on Fezula, Zoge's proposal and where he was coming from and like why did he write the proposal that way and why is he fighting so hard to have all of the sedentary territories and why is he fighting so hard to have all of the cultural centers, you know, the cultural cities of Central Asia. And then I'm trying to focus on the ideological front, which is, well, okay, why is it that all of a sudden they don't like the Tajiks, right? Why are they trying to minimize their influence and their contributions? Well, because they're coming from this Chattatai mindset, right? And so I focus on that a lot because um, a lot, partly because the resources that I have focus on that. Um, and two, I think it has, it flows from like where we've been the rest of the season. We framed the Russian civil war in Central Asia through the eyes of the Jadids and the Alashorda. And those two reformist groups um, came, started with a certain ideology, and then it developed over time as the civil war raged on and as they dealt with the Bolsheviks and they, they learned how the Bolsheviks thought of revolution and then they, how they dealt with the Basmachi and like the destruction of their own homeland. You know, their ideology changed and we've been charting that since the beginning of the season. So it felt right to, you know, this is the second class episode of this season. It felt right to continue charting that ideological development. I do mention briefly in this episode some of the economic or financial factors. So again, with Joseph's decision to collect as much sedentary population as possible, well, you want that because it, you know it's easier to try and create an economic structure. Whereas you know Port Tajikistan, it's all the rural land. It's a lot harder to create a functional, healthy economy. So I did focus on that a little bit. I mean, I personally am just not very interested in economics and finance, so. I think there is an interesting story to be told there. I'm just not the person to tell it, but it is an important factor. And it is, you know, a factor that does drive Soviet thinking, because one of the reasons why they wanted to create the Central Asian states is because they wanted to centralize the economic development and economic control, as well as governmental control. My first rule of thumb is, what is the main point of the episode? My second rule of thumb is, what resources are out there? Right, because I could do, I could say, well, you know, I don't want to talk about the creation of the Central Asian states. I want to talk about how the creation affected minorities in this part of the world. And so that does change my focus. And so then I have to find the resources to fit that focus. And if all of the resources I have are talking about, oh, this is how the nation state was created, but they're not really talking about how it affected the minorities of Central Asia, then I can't really write an episode, right? There's not, I can't really go anywhere with it. So once I find a focus, I have to see if I can find resources that meet the focus. And if I can't, then I have to um, adjust the focus. And so thankfully, God bless Adib Khalid. His book goes into great detail about the creation of Uzbekistan. That's why his book is called Making Uzbekistan, as well as it goes into great depths about the creation of Tajikistan. And then I also had Despite Cultures by Bokotaz Kasimbekova, which is a fantastic book. And it's really, actually, I like that book a lot because it goes into great detail about the Soviet psychology and how the way, because, you know, the, the, book ha- the book takes place a little bit after Tajikistan's been created. And it talks a lot about, like, how Stalin had implemented this age of paranoia and, you know, the snake eating its own tail. And, like, what does that do? to a bureaucracy and what does that do with how we deal with language and when 
you know, a statement in 1920 proves that you're a loyal communist. And then that very same statement in 1927 is what gets you executed. How do we then communicate what is actually meant or what, you know, are communist principles when language is no longer a reliable form of communication? You know, it's almost like code words, right? You, you say a sentence and say, oh, yeah, that's really communist in 1924. But then like the cipher changes. And you have to figure out what's changed. And even if you can figure that out, because you said something in 1924 using the old cipher, you're still suspect. And so when language is no longer reliable, what do you do? How do you survive? And so her book is, is fascinating um, because it goes into that, how the people of Tajikistan like, worked around that and how it led to a lot of um, doublespeak and um, Adib Khalid talks about this a little bit in his book as well, Making Uzbekistan. You know, the, the local actors and the, or the indigenous actors will say one thing to their communists, you know, their fellow communists, and then they'll do another thing because they're trying to figure out what communists want to hear. Basically, like, leave them alone, and then they're going to handle things on their own. Or, you know, they're going to say what they need to, to protect themselves, but then you not really mean it. I found a couple of really good resources on Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Um, curiously, I haven't found a full book on the early days of Kazakhstan. I relied a lot on papers and PhD dissertations, which I, I find kind of interesting. I find the whole Alash Orda movement very interesting, and I'm really curious if the book hasn't been written about them yet, or if it has, it hasn't been translated into English yet. But Kazakhstan is kind of interesting. I found a really interesting article in Personal Experiences of Nationality and Power in Soviet Kazakhstan by Maria Blackwood. She talks a lot about how the communists would try to paint the Alash Orda and other Kazakh government officials as, you know, bourgeoisie or as um, nationalists. But then the Kazakhs would turn around and call them colonizers, right? And they'd be like, well, this person's a colonizer, and so we need to remove him because he's hurting the communist MO. And that worked for a long time. And within that article, um, I found some interesting references to to Ariskulov and how he would help out members of the Alash Orda after they had been banished from government. And he did this for many years. And then, but when the uh, OGPU, which is the predecessor of KGB, would come after members of the Alash Orda, he didn't really intercede to protect them. I have a lot of thoughts about to Ariskulov, and I, I wish there was more English language um, sources about him because I find him to be very very fascinating but back to like my point of how do you determine the scope of your episode so one is what's the point to what resources exist and then three how long do you want your episode to be and this is where I run into a lot of trouble because I think an episode is going to be like 20 minutes and it ends up being 40 because I have all these tidbits I want to throw in or while recording my mind will start going down a path that I had not thought of when I was writing the episode, and then I have to account for that. Um, but generally, I like my episodes about 30 to 40 minutes long. I think anything longer than that, and um, I run the risk of losing my audience or confusing my audience because there's just too much information. So the last episode, I just published you know, the, the transformation of Soviet republics into Central Asian states. It's about an hour, even though I did cut out making history segment mostly. Um, so it was still about an hour long, which is longer than I want, and I really should have cut it in half, honestly. But sometimes you can't do that, because sometimes the whole story, the story works better if it's a full episode, and I learned that earlier this season. I was trying to talk about the Alash Orda in the step, 
and their alliance with the white army and with the red army. And I, I cut it into multiple episodes to stay within the time frame of 30 minutes, but I feel like the flow, it didn't help the flow at all. And it may have made things feel disjointed. So I didn't want to do that with this episode. But at the same time, it's definitely a half hour longer than I would normally want it to be. So that's something I'm still trying to work on. But those are my three rules of thumb. I'm trying to figure out what goes into an episode or not. As well as, like I was saying, the considerations I have to make towards like what narrative am I telling? Whose voices am I uplifting? Am I telling a narrative that is aware of its own biases, right? Because you can never tell an unbiased story. Like, that doesn't exist. There's always biases that come through. So am I telling a story that is aware of its own biases and does its best to either acknowledge them and explain my perspective of this may be colored by this other bias I have, or just acknowledging, you know, what am I overlooking or what was I not including? So those are just some of the thoughts I had about creating episodes and how I'm shaping the narrative. Um, I hope you enjoyed this behind the scenes episodes. I don't want these to be the same length as a full episode. I'd like them to be a little shorter because otherwise I'm just making two episodes, one which is very polished and well-researched and then one which is just me saying um a lot and rambling. If you'd like to listen to my other more uh, polished episodes, you can check out my full catalog on Spotify, iTunes, and my website www.samswarroom.com. If you want to see more behind the scene episodes and you want to support my research, please join my Patreon, which I just relaunched for my third anniversary. My Patreon is www.patreon.com slash AOA warfare. Until next time, wear a mask, organize your community, and stay safe.